Thanks, Mark. Good evening. How's it going? Great. Great to hear that, Jack. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and thrilled to be with you guys tonight as we uh, look at God's Word here. Before we do, I want to acknowledge and celebrate something that's been going on in our church over the last couple uh, weeks. Uh, you may remember a few weeks back, we had asked and encouraged some people to help out and to serve with kids' ministry. Just what an important ministry that is. I realize that at this 5 o'clock service, a lot of the people that are serving are serving. <laughs> um, but what I'd like to do is just ask any of you who served this summer or are serving this next fall season with kids' ministry, would you stand? And we just want to acknowledge you. I realize it may not be a ton of people, but oh, it's, it is a ton of people. Yeah. Awesome. Way to go. Very cool. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, it's just really awesome to think about the ministry that folks have with our kids. There are over 150, uh, I think 115 volunteers every week that serve with kids' ministry. 21 people are serving this time for the first time which is really exciting, and we view it as not just child care, right? It isn't, it isn't ch redemption child care, it's, it's kids' ministry. And just a great story that illustrates that to me is what happened a few weeks ago as our team was doing a training and a bunch of people were there, I think about 70 people were there, and they walked through the hallways and went into every classroom and prayed through all the hallways and in every classroom for every kid and every family praying that God would minister to them during that season. So I'm just so thankful for the investment that you all that stood made, and uh, there's a ton of people there that are serving tonight, and so as you pick your kids up, be sure to say thanks to them, and uh, let's take a moment now and just thank the Lord for that as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for your generosity to us, and God, thank you for the generosity that extends uh, through so many people in this church in so many different ways. God, generosity of time, of energy, of talent, of money. God, we're thankful for all of it. And tonight I especially pray uh, with thanksgiving for the men and women and students who served and who are serving this next year with our kids. And we pray you'd bless them. We pray you'd help them build great relationships. We pray that Jesus would become more real and tangible in the minds of our kids. And we pray that you would get the honor and glory for it. And God, as we turn our attention to your word now, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears, our minds, to receive what you would have to say to us. So we ask that of you in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're in the Gospel of Mark. We've been here for most of the year, and we'll be here for most of the rest of the year. And it's all kind of come down to this moment. Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been doing a lot of different things. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. And Mark has made it clear through this whole gospel that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the son of God. And even though Mark makes it clear to the reader, the people in the story don't fully get it. And they're wondering, who is this guy? And all of that culminates to this last week of Jesus' life that we're looking at uh, from here the rest of the way out. So Jesus was crucified on a Friday. We're now at the Tuesday leading up to that. All right, so this is a big showdown week for Jesus, where all the discussion, all the controversy, all the questions about who he is, is now coming to a head. And specifically here on this Tuesday, it's coming to head in the temple, in this massive place of worship where Jesus has been challenging the religious establishment, and we're going to see over the next few weeks is that Jesus has some really strong and corrective things to say to the religious leaders. Now, um, you all know, right, you're social people, you have friends, you go to parties, you do things. You know there's two things you're never supposed to talk about at parties, right? What are they? Politics and religion. 
politics or religion. You don't talk about that, okay? Well, Jesus is going to break the social rules tonight, all right? He's going to talk about politics and about religion. He's going to get really uncomfortable here, and he's going to actually reframe both. He's going to help us get a whole new idea of how the Scripture and how Jesus views politics and how he views religion. And so tonight could get uncomfortable, could night could get a little awkward. Not only are we going to talk about politics and religion, but we're going to talk about one more area that is really uncomfortable that you don't want to talk about, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it could get dicey in here. And so I just want to invite you even now to, to pray and say, God, I know these things out there. No one wants to talk about them, but, but what a better place to talk about these things than here. And so make me open to what you want to say to me. Maybe you could pray something like that as we go. All right? Well, the setting we find uh, introduced to us in verse 13. Again, Jesus is in the temple. The, right before this, he's told all these religious leaders uh, that they are going to kill him and uh, basically deny God in the process, and uh, they don't like that very much. So they're trying to figure out ways to trap him, to get back at him, to uh, make him less popular. And so verse 13 gives us the setting. It says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, this is a very odd couple. This is an odd grouping, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees, uh, that word means set-apart ones. These Pharisees were very committed to the religion of Israel, and they were very anti-Rome, right? Israel's under Roman occupation at this point. The Pharisees say, we don't want anything to do with that. We want to be set apart. We want to be distinct. We don't want anything to do with Roman culture, Roman empire, Roman government, any of that. The Herodians, on the other hand, they took their name from Herod. They were supporters of Herod. Well, Herod was a, you know, under the Roman official, was a, was a ruler, a governor. So the Herodians are very into Greek culture, very into uh, Roman kind of ideals. They're all into that. And these two groups don't agree on anything except that they don't like Jesus. It's an odd couple, right? That made me think, what would be some groups like, just to see how distinct this could be, right? So, so one would be if ASU and U of A fans got together, right? Like these are people, they don't agree on anything, but they would come together. Or I thought, what about if you had NRA supporters and PETA supporters? Like that's, that's kind of how disparate, how crazy this is, right? Or if you had like NASCAR fans and opera fans, right? That's how, that's how odd of a pairing this is, okay? So the, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they don't agree on anything except that they don't like Jesus. Jesus is a threat to both of them. So they actually pair together, and it says that they come to Jesus to trap him. The word trap has with it the idea of trapping an animal, capturing, seizing something, right? They're hunting Jesus down to stop him. So they have a trap. And I just imagine that before this moment, they've been thinking, what is it that would really get him? What could we ask him? That no matter how he answered it, he'd end up in trouble. And they thought, oh, we got it. Here it is. We know. And so now's the time they're going to trap Jesus. Well, first they got to butter him up. So they say, verse 14, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Oh, oh, you think so? Right? I mean, this is so phony. Right? They're just buttering him up, just blowing smoke. Oh, Jesus, you're so great. Really? Really? Then they ask this question. Here's the trap. Here's what they've been planning. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Jesus knows that they're not honest, right? He says verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus saw right through their little, you know, empty flattery. He saw through that. He said, all right, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And it's through this discussion and through this question that first Jesus reframes politics. Jesus here is going to reframe politics and government. Their question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, in order to understand what they're really getting at, you've got to know that there were three different kinds of taxes in the Roman Empire. Uh, One would be like a property tax or a land tax. We're familiar with that kind of concept. We have that in our culture. Another kind of tax would be a sales tax or a tax on trade. Those were the kind of taxes that the tax collectors, when you read about those in in the Gospels, they would collect those taxes, and they were so unpopular because they could kind of charge what any sales rate they wanted, right? So you had property taxes, you had sales taxes. What they're talking about here is a head tax or a poll tax. It's a, uh, no matter how rich or how poor you are, you all pay the same amount. It's a flat tax. The imperial poll tax is one denarius. A denarius is, a, is a, basically about the equivalent of a day's wage for a worker. And that's what everyone would pay for the privilege of being part of the Roman Empire. Now, it was wildly unpopular. We're going to see in a moment a little bit of why it was so unpopular. But here's the trap that they're setting, right? This was so unpopular, the Jews really didn't like the idea that they were under Roman rule, let alone to acknowledge it, let alone to pay for the privilege of being part of it. It just made them want to gag. So it's wildly unpopular. So when they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, they think they've got Jesus. Because if Jesus says yes, then he gets in trouble with all the people that really like him. Right? If he says, no, you shouldn't pay it, then he's in trouble with the government. He's an insurrectionist. Right? And Rome might crack down on him. Right? So they feel like either way, we've got him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus says, bring me a denarius. It's interesting here that Jesus doesn't have one. Right? He, he doesn't have a coin. He doesn't have this. He's not carrying this around. He has to say, why don't you bring me one? And they, they bring him one. And then he asks this question in verse 16. He said to them, and this is a key question. This question actually frames everything Jesus is going to say as he reframes politics and religion. Here's his question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose likeness, whose image, whose icon is the word? Whose likeness is on this coin? Because Jesus thought, we're going to see here, is that whoever's image is on it, owns it, belongs to them. So Jesus says, whose likeness, whose icon, whose image is on this? And they say Caesar's. And in fact, they're right. Let me show you a picture of what a denarius looked like. Uh, We have these through archaeology and other things. And and, uh, the front side uh, had a picture of Tiberius Caesar Augustus and an inscription that basically in shorthand in Greek shorthand, said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. You know that saying? Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of God. Right? In, in our day, we kind of have the, the I think it's a myth, the idea that, that culture and government and the marketplace is sort of secular and neutral. Right? Here, they didn't have that myth. Right? It was very much an idea that this was the Roman Empire that was, had divine authority, right? And when a, an emperor died, they were 
they were divine, they thought, right? So on one side of this coin is Caesar, and it says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of God. On the other side, it says high priest. This is very religious language, and this is partly why the Jews hated it so much, right? The Jews were not allowed to make graven images, and they were not allowed to worship other gods, and the denarius functioned, in a sense, like a portable idol, a little portable blasphemous thing, and they had to carry it around, and then that's what they had to use to say, we honor Caesar. They hated it. And again, isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't have one? They do. This infuriated them. N.T. writes, a scholar from Great Britain, he says this, if the Romans had gone out of their way to be offensive to the Jews, they could hardly have done it better. That's absolutely right. They hate this, and yet they have it. I think that's so fascinating that Jesus doesn't have the coin, they do. And the reason that's fascinating is because what it shows is that they were happy to live under this system. Right? They bought and sold goods using that currency. They enjoyed all the blessings of the Pax Romana and the Roman roads and all these different things. They wanted to enjoy all the benefits that came with Rome and yet not support it. Right? It's a little bit like how we want to have great schools and we want to have wonderful parks and we want to have great roads, but we don't want to pay for it. Same kind of idea. Bring me a denarius, Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is this. They said to him, Caesar's. So then Jesus gives this answer. And in this answer, what Jesus is going to do is reframe both politics and religion. Here's his answer, verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Whose icon is on the coin? Caesar's? Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's? Okay, then give it to him. You owe it to him. That's what that word render means. It doesn't mean give freely. It means pay what you owe. You have an obligation. You have an obligation to Caesar for this image because it's his. And you have an obligation to God. Well, who, where do we find God's image? Where do we find God's likeness? Us. So Jesus reframes politics and says, give that to Caesar because it belongs to him, but give your whole self to God because that belongs to him. In this, Jesus is reframing both politics and worship. And this isn't what they expected, right? It concludes and says they marveled at him. They went, that, wasn't, that didn't go how we thought. <laughs> Dang it, Jesus, we can't get this guy. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Here's what Jesus says to basically reframe. uh, Here's a way you could summarize what Jesus is saying about government. It's this. Government has legitimate but limited claim on its citizens. Government has a legitimate but limited claim on its citizens. It has a legitimate claim, right? Some people even today think, we don't need the government. The government's stupid. The government doesn't know anything. The government does everything wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's mostly true. But... We still need it, right? The idea of no government is not a biblical idea. Here, Jesus is saying there is a legitimate role even of a pagan government. The Bible affirms this a number of places. Romans 13 talks about this. 1 Peter talks about this. All over the place where they're saying there's a role, a legitimate role that government has. Let me, in fact, show you Romans 13, 7. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says a very similar kind of thing. He says, pay to all what is owed to them. That word pay is the same word that's used in Mark 12 as render, same Greek word. 
pay, render to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You go, well, I don't know if the government deserves any of that. Okay, well, just let me point out to you that at the point that Paul writes Romans 13 and at the point that Mark is writing his gospel, do you know who the emperor is in Rome? Nero. Right? Nero's on a short list of the worst people in history. Right? Nero, Hitler, Mussolini, right? all things you don't name children. Right? These are the bad guys. And, and if the Bible can say even someone like Nero has a legitimate authority as a ruler, submit to him, then, then for sure us, the United States of America, no matter how bad or dysfunctional our government, there's a legitimate place for it. But it's a limited claim. It's a legitimate claim, but it's limited. Right? Government doesn't have full authority over your whole life. Why? Because you're not made in government's image, you're made in God's image. And whoever's image is on it has ownership of it. So, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This means that, that it's a limited authority, right? So at some point, when what the government tells you to do and what God tells you to do, when those clash, who wins? God. Right, when the government tells you you have to do this or you can't do this and it's in contradiction to the Bible, you do what the Bible says. You obey God rather than men because your ultimate authority is God. That, I think, is a nice sort of check to those of us who get really kind of too into the politics stuff. Right, and our hopes rise and fall based on how the political thing is going, which means it mostly falls. Because it doesn't typically go real well, right? And we're left with like, two, you know, all that's left to do is complain and buy gold. <laughs> right? What, how are you contributing to the kingdom? I complain and I buy gold. Right? Because you're just so caught up in it. And it's like, this is your only hope and this is your only thing. And, and that's, that's putting too much hope in it. Government's not your savior. Government's not your ultimate Lord. You don't live for government. You live for the Lord. He's our hope. So government has a legitimate but limited claim on its citizens. So in reframing politics, he also then, Jesus, is reframing religion. Jesus is saying, listen, Pharisees, listen, Herodians, not only do you not understand the role of government, but you don't even understand your relationship to God. Both of these are asking more of you than you're currently willing to give. See, the Pharisees had a, had a, a kind of religion that, that wasn't quite all in. Right? They wanted to appear all in. They wanted to seem like they were really committed to it. Jesus is saying, you're holding something back. God's likeness is on you. God's image is on you. And you're wanting to give God a little portion, just enough of your life. And God wants the whole thing why we say here all of life is all for Jesus all of it not just Sunday evenings not just Wednesday nights not just the official God times but all of life why because we're to render to God what's God's what's God's all of us every part so what I wanted to 
kind of do to help us think through this is to go, okay, how do, we, how do we discern whether we're kind of holding back, kind of like the Pharisees, or whether we're all in, like Jesus describes? And so I went to Matthew 23 and to Matthew 6 and a number of other places where Jesus critiques the Pharisees, and he describes their approach. And, and I basically came up to, to oversimplify this, to be sure, with two key differences between the way that the Pharisees approach religion and the way Jesus did. Okay, so in the Pharisees' approach, it's all about outward appearances. How do I look good? Right, this is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you pray, don't go on the street corners where everyone looks at you, but go up to your closet, get by yourself. This isn't about impressing people, it's about praying to God, right? It's all about outward appearance. What do we have to do to look the part? Jesus, on the other hand, is focused on an audience of one. He's saying, I came to do the will of my Father, I came to do what he wants me to do. This is why even the Pharisees, they, they point this out in their, in their shallow you know, praise of him, but they're right. J- Jesus, we know that you're true and don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. You teach the truth about God. True. Yes. Why? Because for Jesus, all of his life, his whole life was devoted to his father. Second key difference between the Pharisees and Jesus is that the Pharisees were all about doing just enough give me the box to check, give me the rule list, give me the line to cross, and I just want to get right over that, and then I can feel pretty good that I was a good boy, and I did all the right things, right? Whereas Jesus is saying, overflowing generosity is the way of the Christian. Not just enough, not just give me the boxes to check, but, but let me pour myself out generously in blessing for other people, right? That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, his most costly thing, so that whoever would trust in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. And that word gave, it's not the word render, right? The word render is you owe this. The word give is just freely, right? That's, that's the way of Jesus. Whereas the way of the Pharisees is let me just do just enough, right? One example he talks about in, in Matthew 23 is he says, Pharisees, you're doing all this tithing stuff, right? A tithe is a tenth of everything that you have that you would give. And uh, Jesus says, that's great. And you're actually getting really serious about it. Like you tithe, you know, a tenth of all your herbs from your garden, right? You're, you're serious. And that's great. But in the process, you're neglecting things like justice and mercy and kindness to people. You're worried about doing just enough. You should keep doing that, but you should do more. All of your life should be for the Lord. Now, I think that is a helpful grid to think through a lot of different things, right? Because you go, I, I want to live, I want to render to God what's God's. My whole self is God's. How do I do that, right? Okay, well, it would start to look like this, right? So think about a number of areas. You could think about work, right? We spend a lot of our life in work. If all of our life is supposed to be honoring God and worshiping him, then you could think about how does, how does this reshape your work, right? In your work, are you focused mostly on outward appearances, I got to do whatever just is going to make me look good to my boss, to my colleagues, to my clients, right? I want to do that, and I want to do just enough. I want to, you know, keep my job and, and do pretty well, but I, you know, I, I just give me kind of the minimum thing that I got to do. Or are you going, I do my work, as it says in Colossians 3, as if working for the Lord and not for men, knowing that my reward comes from him, and I am overflowing with generosity toward the people I work with, toward the clients I have. I go above and beyond. Why? Because I'm a person that God has gone above and beyond to give to. Very different approach to work. This could really impact the way you think through relationships. 
Right? Think about the relationships and the community and the people that you're connected to. Right? Do you have more of a Pharisee approach where you go, I really, I, I'm in these relationships mostly to feel good about me? Right? And I want to make sure that my image looks good to all these people and they think right, that this motivates my parenting and this motivates how I do stuff is that I want them to think I'm good. And I want to do just enough. Right? I, I really do care about them, but, but I don't, I don't, I, I'm busy and I can't do a lot. And I, so what's the minimum I can do to have them feel like I still care? Right? None of us would ever be that honest. But in reality, that's a very common and easy way to think of relationships versus saying, God's been overflowingly kind to me. And I don't need to try to earn approval from people because I already have God's approval in Christ. That's enough for me. And so now I can be sacrificial and I can be kind because my identity is not based in what does everyone think of me. It's based in what God thinks of me and I can be generous. Right? Work, relationships. What about money? Told you we were going to talk about one more thing you don't want to talk about. Money. What about money? Right? This is a very obvious thing to talk about. Jesus talks about this in relation to the Pharisees multiple times. He says, when you give, don't make a big deal about it. Name the building after yourself. Give in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. But the Pharisees' approach to money was, it's got to be outward. It's got to be big. It's got to be showy. But it's got to be just enough. I'm going to get all my herbs right, but I'm not going to take care of my elderly parents who really need me. Jesus is going, everything you have is from God. You're made in his image. You're not an owner. You're a steward. And so be generous. Again, you could think through this grid in so many ways. Am I a Pharisee just looking at the outward appearance, or am I committed to Christ? And that reshapes how I think about all these things. So here's what I want to do as we seek to apply this. What we're seeking to apply is Jesus' statement, render to God the things that are God's. Right? Give to God what's God's. Give your whole life to God. That's what we're trying to apply. You go, how do I do that? Well, we're giving some examples. But what I want to do is I want to focus in on one particular area. We've already hit on it. And, and I want to focus on it because I think it drives the other ones. And I think it's, as in my experience as a pastor, one of the most significant things for, get it, for, for God getting a hold of people's full hearts. And it's money. It's money. And the reason, if you go, man, pastors, they always talk about money. Churches always talk about money. I don't like that. Well, the reason we do is because Jesus talked about it a lot. Because Jesus knew that the main competitor... For our hearts was money. And Jesus wants our hearts, right? Think, think about just the, the logic here. Jesus saying, I want your whole life. I want your whole heart. And then Jesus goes on to say this in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart follows your treasure. Your love, your passion, your commitment, your heart follows your money. That's what Jesus is saying. Right? If you invest in a particular company, you start caring about that company. If you give something to an organization, you start caring about that organization. If you give money to God, you start caring more and having to trust more of God. This is just how it works, right? So Jesus is saying, I want your whole heart. And the path to your whole heart is your wallet. So that's why I want to talk about this. That's why I want to apply this. And uh, we've done something every couple years as a church that I've seen as a proven thing that for numbers of people, 
has been really significant for helping them have more of their life committed to God. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to close this message with a challenge, with a challenge. It's the 90-day tithe challenge. I'm challenging you to commit for 90 days of increased intentional financial generosity. You can be generous in all kinds of ways, but, but your heart follows your money. So this is what I want to challenge us to do. I don't want to guilt anybody into it. I'm not going to twist anyone's arm. You can be part of the challenge or not. It's up to you. Really. I mean, I'm not just, this isn't one of those ways of saying, well, you better pray about it, and if God says that you should do it, then you should do it. Like, really, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But I want to challenge you to consider it. And before I challenge you, I just, I need to say a few things. One is, as a church, we are not in financial pain or crisis. We're doing quite well as a church because many of you apply this principle. You're generous, and we thank you for that. And it really, it's totally amazing that, you know, at this current pace, we're on track to far exceed, you know, exceed our budgeted need for the year based on what you give. I talk to pastors, I talk to churches, they hear that, and they think, I didn't know that was possible, that a church could you know, meet its budget. That's amazing. And it is amazing. And we're thankful for that. So this is not in any way coming out of a place of crisis or pain. It really is coming out of the reality that when you live with your money committed to God, more of your heart follows it. I'd also say I could make a case, I think, that you should give to your church. But for the sake of this challenge, if you don't want to give to this church, give somewhere else. That's fine. This really isn't about what we want from you. It is about what we want for you. And so, what is the tithe challenge? What is it? Okay, 90 days, September 13th to December 13th, of intentional financial generosity, specifically beginning with, probably for many of us, with a tithe. You go, tithe, you keep saying this word, what does tithe mean? A tithe is a tenth. It means giving 10%, right? Picture you have $10, you give one, right? That's a tithe. That's what, that's what this idea, that, that idea of the tithe comes from the Old Testament in numbers of places where this was what the people of God were called to give as a minimum, right? This was the ground floor. This wasn't the finish line. This was the starting blocks, right? And, and Pharisees would very much look at it like, okay, well, 10%, there's the line. I got to hit that. Then I'm good. Whereas God's people would go, no, 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 that's the starting point. I want to give far more than that, right? Sometimes people will say, well, if tithe's Old Testament, you know, it's legalism. Okay then give 11%. If you're up on 10%, give more, right? As, as the people of, of Jesus, we've experienced far more grace than the Old Testament people, right? So oftentimes when people are resistant to that and say it's legalist, it's because they want to give less, which is not in line with the heart of the gospel. So for those of you who are not currently giving a tenth of your resources to God, I want to challenge you to do it. For the next 90 days, 10%. Not as a finishing line, but as a starting block. And I think there's some biblical precedent for challenging you in this, because this is the one area, if you read Malachi 3, it's the one area where God says, test me. Test me. Bring the full tithe to me and test me and see if I don't blow open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing you can't even handle it. And that blessing might be financial. That blessing might be relational. That blessing might be suffering which actually draws you more to Christ, it could look a lot of different ways. But Jesus is saying, if you will trust me with this and give to God what's God's, just watch and see what I'll do. Now, if you're giving 10% already, 
or you're giving more than that, what I want you to pray about is what might God be calling you to do for this window of time to be more generous, to trust God even more. A lot of you, you've already wrestled through this. You've thought through this. You've prayed about this, right? You're giving abundantly to our church. You're giving abundantly to our Roots Project for the land we've purchased next door, right? And I'm not trying to squeeze you for more, but I am saying for this season, could, could God get a little more of our hearts? That's what this is about. That's what the tithe challenge is. Here's the next question that I think a lot of you are probably thinking is, that sounds crazy. Well, why, would I, why should I consider that? That sounds crazy. Do you have any idea how much 10% is? And my answer is, yes, I do. And I can see how it sounds crazy. Right? There are times when I look at our giving statement and I think, we could do some stuff with that. It's a significant amount of money, right? It's one thing if you have $10 bills to give one, right? But if, if you start having zeros at the end of those, you know, it gets a little harder. And I do realize how much that is, but, but here's why you should consider it. Two reasons. First reason is that your commitment to Christ does not grow automatically, it grows intentionally. Nobody drifts toward more of their life being devoted to God. You don't drift that way. It doesn't happen automatically. It happens intentionally. It happens by making a concrete decision to go, I want to pursue God in this way. I want to trust God in this way. And sadly, many Christians have never thought about this. We're just sort of living just like every other American lives, just like every other person that doesn't have their allegiance to Christ, and yet we haven't really drifted towards holiness. We look kind of just like the rest of the world, and we wonder why. And so there's a difference. You've got to understand this. There's a big difference between American giving and Christian giving. American giving you might call 3S giving. This is how most Americans give. I realize there may be exceptions, but this is basically how it is for Americans is uh, three S. First, spontaneous. I give when a moment comes up or someone asks me, or hey, would you like to buy a shamrock to support the this at the grocery store? And you go, oh yeah, sure. Or, or there's a hurricane and you go, oh, I'll give spontaneously. And that's, that's how many people give. Uh, giving also sporadic. So it's not consistent. It's not intentional. It's not purposeful. It's just kind of whenever, however, Right, one author that I've read that talks about this, he calls this God-tipping. It's kind of an interesting word, right? The idea of, well, I don't, I don't give God a priority. He's not like the thing that drives me and my money. But, I, you know, from time to time, I, here's a 20, God. I mean, let me tip you. And American giving is, is sparingly. It's if we have something left over. If we can, if we can get around to it, right? That's not a Christian approach to giving. A Christian approach to giving is very different. It's 3P giving. It's priority, which means this is the first thing I give. God gets my first and God gets my best. This is the first thing I do. Before I pay a bill, before I go to the store, before I plan a vacation, I give to God. He's my priority. Second is Christian giving is percentage, Right? Not just a little tip here or there, but something that, that costs me a little bit more. Something that i got to feel. Something that I go, man, i got to have to trust that God could do more with my 90% than I could do with 100. That takes some faith. And Christian giving is progressive, which means it wants to keep giving more. Right? Maybe, maybe now you give 10% and you go, you know what, next year I'd love to give 11 
And the year after that, I'd love to give 12, and then 13. And I know some people who have set it as a goal that someday they want to be reverse tithers, where they give 90% and keep 10. That's a, that's a heart of Jesus that just is absolutely consistent. There's a big difference, and your commitment to Christ doesn't grow automatically. It grows intentionally. We have to prioritize it. Here's the second reason why you should consider this. The second reason is that intentional giving will grow your faith and change your life. I can stand here not afraid, not feeling like I have to back down, and not feeling like, boy, I need everybody's money, and I can just tell you, this changes people's lives. I see it over and over and over. Every time we've issued one of these challenges, I've seen tremendous change, not just in people's financial life, but their whole life. And I'll never forget the first time that we uh, taught this and did a tithe challenge. This was probably about four or five years ago. And I remember a couple days after uh, that that Sunday, I had a meeting with a, a woman who basically was going, you're crazy. 10%? 10%? I, I can't do that. Like, I want to. I'd love to be able to do that. But, like, I've looked at my budget. I looked at my expenses. Like, it doesn't add up. If I give 10%, there is not enough money to buy groceries and pay bills and do all these things. I just don't, I don't see how this, I don't see how this adds up. And, and anyway, I've tried to tithe before. I've tried to give 10% before. And every time I try to do it, something comes up and something, you know, a car breaks down or this gets in the way and it just never seems to work out. And, and I don't know like where, what planet you live on, but like this is, I can't do this, right? She, she's going, I remember she said, this is like talking to an overweight person and saying, just get skinny. Like it's not that simple. And in that moment, I had a choice. I could go, all right, am I going to go on outward appearances and go, you know what? You're right. Your situation's tough. Yeah, God says this, but, you know, he'd probably make an exception for you. Was I going to just kind of cow to the pressure of her anger in that moment? Or was I going to go, I live for an audience of one. I got to do what God says. And that's what I chose to do. And I told her, I said, listen, I'm really sorry for the difficult circumstance you're in. And I believe it's difficult. I'm not minimizing that at all. But I also can say with the authority of God's word that God invites you to test him. And I said, and I wonder, I'm not saying this is for sure the case, but is it possible that perhaps the reason why finances have always been this tough issue and they never work out and it's always this tense thing, is it possible that that's because you've never fully trusted God with your money? And, and might it be possible that if you said, no matter what, I am going to tithe, no matter what interruptions happen in my life and just see what happens, could it be that God might actually come through? okay, I'm going to do it. And I don't know, three, four months later, once it was all over, her and her family had Molly and our family over, and they sat for an hour and talked about how their life had changed. She had decided, you know what, we're going to stop with cable. And they started playing games together, and they were closer as a family than they'd ever been. She said, you know what, I, I love my gym, and I don't want to quit the gym, but I'm going to quit the gym so I can give to God. And she quit the gym, and she started running around her neighborhood, and she lost weight. I think that's really funny. How cool. And these opportunities that had kind of been like, 
on deck waiting, and maybe they can happen, and maybe they can't, all of a sudden happened. And money that they didn't know about showed up from people that had no idea they were doing this tithe challenge, right? It just went on and on and on and on. And if you knew this person today, you would know that, that this, this person, this particular woman and her family, one of the most generous people, one of the most generous families. It would blow your mind. After the last time we did a tithe challenge, I would you know, email people and say, well, it's going. How's it, how's it going? And, and what are you learning? And what are you seeing? And and I got some great emails back. I want to share with you two of them. I'm not sharing with you who they are for their privacy. Um, but, but one person wrote this. A week back, we were struggling to pay a huge debt for a dentist, which we had used for our daughter. And my weekly earning was not enough to do that and meet all the other needs. But we continued to choose not to stop our tithe in any circumstance. Think about that just for a moment. Do you think that takes faith? I don't have the money. I don't know how this is going to happen. But no matter what, I'm giving to God first and best. And God, I'm out here. You told me to test you. I'm doing it. Catch me. Right? Do you think that will grow your faith? Yes. That's exactly what happened. This person said, it was amazing. When my wife went in for the next appointment, the dentist informed her that one of our neighbors had come and settled that due payment. Not to mention that person is not from our church either. It's amazing how God works. It is amazing how God works. If we'll trust him. And so many of us, I think, just are going, well, God doesn't come through. God doesn't come through. And we've never really tried. We've never put ourselves out there and said, God, you say, test me. You say you'll come through. Right? Kind of our Lieutenant Dan moment. Like, bring it on, God. Test him. Do it. Here's what another uh, gentleman said, and I love this email. He said this when it was all over. He said, being part of the tithing challenge was a big step for me. Prior to this event, I would at best classify myself as a God tipper, to use your breakdowns. My wife was a regular contributor, but I tended to sit back. I think this more than likely stems from my history with organized religions who I often saw as more concerned with getting money from their parishioners than strengthening their relationship with God. Right? Maybe you have that same concern. Here's what he said at the end. Having been part of the tithing challenge, I now find myself closer to the church, a greater part of the community, and growing in my relationship with the Lord. And this is a guy who two years ago was on the sidelines, and now every week he has an opportunity to lead and shepherd people as they grow in their faith with God. How did that happen? His heart followed his treasure. And the more of his treasure he gave, the more of his heart God received, and we're to give to God what's God's. It's all of us. It's the whole thing. So here's how I want to finish. I want to give you an opportunity to take the tithe challenge. And again, this is totally if you want to. This is absolutely voluntary. But if you want to, here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab the program that you got when you came in. Real simple to do this. As you, uh, op- as you open that, right, there's this connection card, which is supposed to easily detach, but that was a little bit tricky. Um, and I want you to mark on there, I'd like to participate in the 90-day tithe challenge, right? Surprise your spouse with it. That'll be really interesting, right? Mark on there, 
put your name on it, put your email address, and drop it into the giving boxes that are right back there by the door. We want to send you resources. We want to pray for you. We want to be encouraging you throughout this process. We really want to help and want to help you get not just your giving in order, but your whole financial life in order. So we have some other resources related to that that you can pursue if you want. Um, the, there's two books that we ordered. We ordered some extra copies of these. These are available at the info desk. We're selling them at our cost. We're not making any money. We're actually losing a little bit. Um, the first one is The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. It's really little, right? One guy earlier said, yeah, a couple trips to the bathroom. I think I could finish that, right? So get that book. The other one is a book by Jamie Munson called Money, God, or Gift. Right? Is money your God or is money your gift? Really good resource. So we want to help you kind of think through your, your money. There's also a class that we're going to start in a couple weeks called Crown Money Life. And uh, this is a class that will help you kind of think through and understand finances big picture, right? What does the Bible say about saving? What does the Bible say about stewardship? What does the Bible say about giving and investing and parenting and conversations and all kinds of stuff? And especially if money's a tense issue in your family, this would be a great thing for you to take. Molly and I took a class like this our first year of marriage, one of the best things we ever did. Set us on a whole different trajectory. And so we want to offer that class as an opportunity for you to grow in this. This really is, we want you to have more of your heart yielded to God. Hope that comes through. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness and generosity to us. We see that most of all in Jesus. The king without a coin who came to pay our debt. God, I pray that as we respond to you, we would... Uh, respond with more and more of our hearts yielded to you, more of our hearts given to you. God, you've been so generous. We could never pay you back. We don't even want to try, but we do want to imitate you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.